I'd like you to open your Bibles this morning to 1 Peter chapter 5. Pads, Bibles, phone apps, whatever you got, open them up. 1 Peter chapter 5. We'll also be um, showing it on the screen. We're going to finish up 1 Peter. Believe it or not, I've been promising this for three weeks, and I really mean it today. <laughs> We're going to be looking at the last few verses. It's just a, you know, the final greetings, if you will. Uh, of Peter, the final encouragement and final greetings, and it's kind of just like wrapping up the end of the letter, but I think you're going to see um, 2 Timothy 3 come out really true this morning through this, that all Scripture is profitable for us, even the goodbyes of the letters. So he writes in verse 12, does Peter, with the help of Silas, whom I regard as a faithful brother, I have written to you briefly encouraging you and testifying that this is the true grace of God. Stand fast in it. She who is in Babylon, chosen together with you, sends you her greetings. And so does my son Mark. Greet one another with a kiss of love. Peace to all of you who are in Christ. So we're concluding again this morning of this study of 1 Peter with two things, two things that Peter does here in these closing verses. He gives a closing encouragement and then some final greetings. We're going to be looking at those and then we're going to take or start a deep dive on one of the greetings. Uh, You might have kind of thought that's an odd way to say something here in verse 13, she who is in Babylon chosen together with you, sends her greetings. We're going to look at that greeting in particular this morning. And the reason is, is that pursuing a a deeper understanding of this verse and that term Babylon is important because Babylon is the second most mentioned city in all of Scripture next to Jerusalem. And it was undoubtedly the greatest empire in the ancient world and the capital of a very powerful empire whose influence is just as powerful this morning as we're seated here right now. And that's because Babylon is more than an ancient city. In the scripture, Babylon is the symbol of all that is opposed to God, and even more, it is the title of the spiritual force of evil that is behind all rebellion against God, against God's truth, against God's commands, against God's plan for the human race. The city of Babylon has come and gone, but the spirit of Babylon has not. Over the history, the course of human history, it has risen and fallen many times, and in the last few years, it is rising very quickly before our very eyes. And understanding ancient Babylon Understanding the future of Babylon in the book of Revelation will help us navigate the present spirit of Babylon that is ruling over and working through the powers that be. To do that, of course, we're going to be leaving 1 Peter and going over to a couple chapters in Genesis and then a few chapters in the book of Daniel and maybe over to Jeremiah and Isaiah. I don't know exactly where this is taking us, but we're going somewhere. I'll tell you that. So let's begin with the final encouragement. Uh, Peter writes here, with the help of Silas, whom I regard as a faithful brother, I have written to you briefly, 
encouraging you and testifying that this is the true grace of God, stand fast in it. Now, when Peter says that he wrote this letter with the help of Silas, it doesn't mean that, that he co-wrote it with Silas, but rather that Silas was the one that was going to deliver it to all of these churches in these regions uh, that we've been calling Asia Minor that uh, Peter is, is sending the letter to. Silas here, in some translations, it says Silvanus, the Latin, was a well-known leader um, in the early church, prominent leader early on and partner with uh, Paul in ministry on his second missionary trip, and by this time in history, a, a partner with Peter in his ministry. So when Peter says that he regards Silas as a, a faithful brother, he's not introducing Silas, he's, he's not giving him a character reference or anything like that, but rather he's indicating that Silas is not only the one that's going to be delivering this letter, he is also the one who will faithfully explain and unpack it for the recipients of the letter. He's not just delivering it. He's also authorized to explain it, to unpack. And I say unpack because although, as Peter says, I've written to you very briefly, it's a brief letter, it's also a very dense letter. And by dense, I mean this letter is packed. This short letter is packed, jam-packed, with spiritual truth. And uh, I never realized that when we began the study. I do now. You know, I was looking back over some of the New Testament books that, we've, that we have looked at over the last two or three years, and uh, those include the book of James and also the book of 2 Timothy. Both of those letters are approximately the same length as 1 Peter. But we got through all of those in 12 weeks. This is our 25th week on this letter. So when I say jam-packed, I mean jam-packed, full of truth. It's amazing how much is in this short letter. And even more amazing is that Peter could summarize the whole letter here in one sentence. He says, I have written to you briefly, encouraging you and testifying that this, this way of life laid out in this letter, that this truth is the true grace of God, so stand fast in it. Now, the, the testimony of this true grace of God, remember, began in chapter 1, where, where Peter speaks about God's sovereign grace choosing these believers to belong to him for no other reason than his own glory. That grace came to, to them and has come to us through believing the gospel through which Peter says we are born again into a living hope and the promise of an inheritance in heaven that'll never pass away. That same grace that makes us alive to God also empowers us to live, as Peter writes, exiles in this present world. Those who are living in a foreign land away from their ultimate home, all the while longing for that ultimate home, the Bible calls heaven. And the same grace that makes us eager for heaven also makes it eager to give our neighbors the reason for the hope that is in us and declare the praises of him who has called us out of darkness into his marvelous light. And by that same 
that same praiseworthy grace, we are enabled, empowered to live lives pleasing to God and to follow His ways, even though we know at times that will set us in conflict with the culture around us and inevitably bring suffering to one degree or another. But even then, in that suffering, this grace is sufficient for us, sufficient to sustain us and sanctify us and give us joy and peace through the very trials that Satan intended to devour us with, Peter tells us in 1 Peter chapter 5. So he testifies of this grace all the way through this book as a personal witness of Jesus Christ. This is the true grace of God. So stand fast in it. You're not going to be an alien in this world forever, he says. Just like you have been saved by God's grace and empowered by God's grace and and sanctified by God's grace and, and kept by God's grace, one day you're going to be glorified by God's grace in your eternal home because the Christian life is from beginning to end one grace upon grace upon grace upon grace. That's what John says in the first chapter of his gospel. And when you're done being the beneficiary of God's grace in this life, the beneficiary, Ephesians 2 says, of the riches of his grace in this life, you will forever experience, Paul writes, the exceeding riches of his grace, age upon age upon age upon age. Peter says, stand fast in that. Don't let anybody move you off of that. Don't let anything weaken your standing in the gospel of grace. And that's the last encouragement he gives them and us in this book. That's the final encouragement. And after that then comes these three final greetings. There's three. There is one from she who is in Babylon. And then there's a greeting from Mark. Those are brought by Peter in the letter written by Peter from Rome to these churches. But then the third greeting is one that he encourages them to do among one another. So let's look at those three greetings again in verse 13. She who is in Babylon, chosen together with you, sends her greetings, and so does my son Mark. Greet one another with a kiss of love. Peace to all of you who are in Christ. So what is this greeting here? I mean, it's a bit cryptic, is it not? She who is in Babylon. Of course, there's been no small amount of debate over the last number of years by scholars about who she is. There's a few that say this is Peter talking about his wife. I doubt that. Peter is referring to his wife, who according to tradition actually traveled with him. But I think he would have stated that directly. Whatever her name is, I don't know what it was. You know, Deborah or Esther, Rachel. Rachel, who is with me, (laughs) sends her greetings, or at least she who is with me, but he doesn't do that. In fact, he adds, in addition to that, a location and also the status of being chosen. And by adding that location and the status of being chosen in the greeting, Peter indicates that he's talking about way more than his wife, and that's why the vast number of Bible scholars, including this pastor, interpret she who is in Babylon as the church that was in Rome 
where Peter was writing this letter from. And that interpretation is confirmed throughout the scriptures that teach that the church is the bride of Christ and therefore referred to with the feminine pronouns of she or her, which we see in Ephesians 5. We see it over in 2 John. We see it in the book of Revelation in chapter 19. So, she is the church. And Babylon is a, is a pseudonym or a code word for ancient Rome. Couldn't have been ancient Babylon for that city, which was located in now what is modern Iraq, had long since been reduced to ruins. There were people who lived there, but not much. And there's no record of a church ever being planted there. There's no record in Scripture of an apostle ever going there. The only explanation, really, is that Babylon was in Rome, where Peter was writing from. And apparently everyone knew that, because he doesn't offer an explanation here. He doesn't clarify, by Babylon I mean. The assumption was, is they knew or had been taught that Babylon, not the physical city, but the spirit of Babylon was now in the Roman Empire, centered in Rome. That, that prideful spirit that defies God, that prideful spirit that deifies man, and that prideful spirit that dismisses the need for the gospel. And so Peter was, if you will, writing from the lair of the beast, which was spiritually centered in Rome. Now, throughout history, the spirit of Babylon is usually operated through a kingdom or a nation or a group of nations. In the 1970s, the popular belief among end-time teachers was that Babylon was basically the EU. The EU was a reconstitution of the Roman Empire and uh, therefore the new Babylon. And then in the late 90s, many thought Saddam Hussein was the second Nebuchadnezzar because he started rebuilding Babylon, actual Babylon in ancient Iraq. He even issued a coin with his likeness side by side with supposedly what Nebuchadnezzar looked like. But as you know, the EU is a bit shaky these days after Brexit and Saddam Hussein is dead. However, Babylon is not dead. In fact, Babylon is bigger than ever right now. It has never been this big. Since the advent and the massive expansion of the internet, the world is more connected than ever and primed for the Antichrist. Globalism has absolutely exploded, and Babylon is once again becoming strong, but not through one world power like Rome, but through all of the world's nations who are slowly uniting together. And of course, again, this is the precursor to the advent of the Antichrist. You know, throughout history, Where God's laws and God's ways have been honored, Babylon has been weakened. But where God's laws and God's ways have been disregarded, Babylon has become strong. And again, I think we live in the days of the latter. Babylon is rising, growing, stronger before our eyes. And yet, what's odd to me is that many believers don't see this. Or maybe it's they don't want to see it. Because nobody wants to live in a world where Babylon is increasing in power, dominated by Babylon. So let's close our eyes.
Let's hope all this foolishness goes away. But it won't. Spirit of Babylon has always, always been working underneath the visible power structures of the world, disguising itself as beneficial and good for humanity. But now, now it has come out from the shadows in open sight, proud and arrogant, shameless and corrupting, celebrating debauchery, mocking virtue, canceling truth, obsessed with power, oppressing freedom, promoting a new kind of fascism with a very well-defined goal that has everything to do with God. And while Babylon can be resisted, there is no amount of human effort that will ultimately defeat her. That can only be done and, and will be done by the Lord Jesus Christ when he returns in the final third book of the Revelation, Revelation 14, 16, 17, and 18. The spirit behind it at Babylon will be totally and once and for all as well as the reconstituted city destroyed and all of heaven, Revelation 19, will rejoice because of it after which Jesus will throw the beast and the false prophet in the lake of fire and bind Satan for a thousand years and begin his earthly reign. And there's more after that, but I don't have time to get into that this morning. But to really understand the spirit of Babylon, you have to go back to the beginning of Babylon. You have to go back to Genesis. Of course, you have to go back to Genesis for everything. Everything about anything is in the first 12 chapters of Genesis. Yeah, that's where they're found, Genesis 10 and uh, 11. And we're going to do that in depth next week. But the origins of Babylon are found in an ancient city, you might have already guessed it by now, called Babel. Babylon and Babel, same Hebrew word. Same exact Hebrew word. That is the, the beginning of Babylon was in Babel. And again, an ancient city, by the way, founded by Noah's great-grandson, actually, Nimrod, on the banks of the Euphrates River, again, about 50 miles south of modern-day Baghdad in Iraq, you can see there. And it was in that city where all of humanity said together, let us make a name for ourselves. Genesis 11, and so they began to build a great city for themselves, and a great tower in the midst of that city, they said to reach up to the heavens, in essence, so they could be their own God. It was the third major rebellion in humanity's history. Most often we focus on the first one and we skip the other two, but this one perhaps in some ways was greater than the previous two. Certainly, the first one had the most long-lasting effects. That's the rebellion in Genesis 3. That's where, prompted by Satan, Adam and Eve disobeyed God, ate of the forbidden tree. They were judged by God, removed from the garden. In the second rebellion in Genesis 6, some of the sons of God, a.k.a. what we know as angels, defied God, mated with the daughters of men, filling the earth with a violent offspring, corrupting all but Noah and his family. They and their offspring corrupted humanity to the point where God destroyed the earth with a flood. The third rebellion was the greatest, though. In the third rebellion, after the restart, 
And that's basically what happened to Noah. Basically, God took him right back to Genesis. Fill the earth, subdue it, multiply. And not long, too many years after that, this third rebellion began. But it wasn't by two human beings. It was by every human being. Every human being rebelled against God. And in doing so, created a system of evil that exists to today. God judged them and destroyed their false unity by confusing the language, scattering them over the face of the earth, and the leaving behind the tower unfinished. But the system, the spirit of Babylon lived on, working through succeeding kingdoms throughout the years, all the way to the reformed kingdom of Babylon in Daniel's day, the prophet Daniel, under perhaps one of the world's greatest kings, illustrious, glorious kingdom, and that was the Babylon of, under King Nebuchadnezzar. Now, that should be a familiar name to you if you've been coming to Grace for a while. Nebuchadnezzar was king of Babylon during that period when Israel as a nation was divided. Uh, There was the northern kingdom and the southern kingdom. The northern kingdom was called Israel. The southern kingdom was called Judah. And both of them um, rebelled against God. The northern kingdom rebelled first And um, they were judged by God and carried off by the Assyrian Empire, just like God promised. You know, when he formed the nation there at Mount Sinai and gave them his law, he said, look, if you ever depart from me to idols, I'll, I'll discipline you, I'll call you back, I'll call you back, I'll call you back, but eventually you'll be carried off by another nation. And that's exactly what happened here. And the same thing happened to the southern kingdom about 100 years later. Judah, though, was carried off into captivity by the Babylonians. And they eventually came back and completely destroyed the temple. You can see the two captivities, the northern one there to Assyria, where Nineveh was the capital, and then the green one underneath, that's the Babylonians carrying off Judah. And um, many people were enslaved. Among them was Daniel. He was taken back to Babylon along with his friends, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah, the three Hebrew children. And just like Jeremiah promised or prophesied years before, this captivity lasted seven years. And after that, a remnant returned and began to rebuild the walls of Jerusalem, and they never once again committed idolatry. They finally learned their lesson. But it's in this narrative of Daniel living in Babylon that we learn how God relates to the nations through his dealings with the spirit of Babylon. You know, when it comes to the nation of Babylon, that mighty nation, believe it or not, and we'll talk, we'll see how mighty it was next week. It's just incredible. One of the seven wonders of the ancient world, the hanging gardens, so forth and so on. But that nation fell in one night, completely fell in one night under God's power. And the thing that we will learn from that is that God, no matter what you see going on around you right now, God is in ultimate control. Ephesians chapter 1 says that he is working out everything in conformity with the purpose of his will. 
So we'll see that as we look to Daniel. We'll also learn how God's people are not just to survive, but thrive and stay on mission in Babylon. We need to stay on mission, just like the people that Peter was writing to in that day were to stay on mission in spite of the Roman government persecuting them. And we're also going to learn the tactics of Babylon, how we can remain faithful to God and not be deceived as our government and all of its agencies, along with big tech, big media, big business, big health, wield more and more Babylon-type power over us. That's what's coming up in the next few weeks. But before we get to that, <laughs> we have to finish the letter of 1 Peter. So following this greeting from she who is in Babylon, we have a greeting from Mark. Mark, he says, also sends his greetings. And this, of course, was the Mark, who is the gospel writer, Mark. And uh, he had a long-standing friendship with Peter. In fact, it goes all the way back to the early days of the church at Jerusalem. You remember, Peter was arrested for preaching the gospel. He was put into prison. And so they began this prayer meeting for him. That prayer meeting was held in Mark's mother's house. And so we can see probably early on that, that Peter was a mentor of Mark. And after serving with Paul and Barnabas, he became a close associate uh, with Peter, um, who calls Mark his son in the faith, kind of like Timothy was Paul's son in the faith. Mark recorded the gospel that bears his name undoubtedly with the help of Peter, and probably at the same time Peter is writing this letter. They were both in Rome at this moment. But the last greeting, though, that Peter says here is a greeting that is to be practiced among the churches and the believers that he is writing to. And we're going to spend a little more time with this one. He said in 1 Peter 5, 14, greet one another with a kiss of love, peace to all of you who are in Christ. Now, it was common, of course, at the end of the letter, all the letters, um, to send greetings from those in the location one was writing to them from to the recipients. Paul did this in many of his letters, and Peter does the same thing here. But he also encourages a greeting among them. We don't know how many churches this letter was sent to or how many believers that was, but Peter calls them, no matter how many, Peter calls all of them in their interactions with one another to greet one another with a kiss of love, which traditionally was a peck on the left cheek and, and on the right. It was a custom in those days in the church. It faded out around 400 AD, but it's still practiced in some cultures today. For us in the Western world uh, and at Grace Family Church, that would traditionally be kind of a, maybe a, a brotherly love type hug or a warm handshake. No kissing allowed. <laughs> at least a smile, at the very least, when greeting. Something that communicates love. That's what Peter was calling for here. He was calling for them to demonstrate or express love for one another. Now, what's really interesting as I thought about this is that Peter would have to command them to do this. I mean, they're Christians, right? They love Jesus, right? Love for one another should just come naturally, right? In fact, when he says here, greet one another, that, that word greet is in the, in the, in the Greek language. It's, it's in a mood of command. It's in the imperative mood. 
It is. They would have read it, I command you to greet one another with a kiss of love or a brotherly hug. Now, why did he have to do that? Well, he did it probably because that's what he learned from Jesus. John chapter 13, those famous words, a new command I give to you. Love one another. As I have loved you, you must love one another. A command I give you. And this was no small command either. Nor was it the repeating of a previous command given by God. This was new. He said it was new. Jesus said it was new. Now, the command to love had been given before, so what made this new? What made it revolutionary? Well, it wasn't because of the love one another. It wasn't that. It was the depth of that love, which is, as I have loved you. You know, earlier, Jesus, over in Matthew 5 in the Sermon on the Mount, said what? Love your neighbor as what? Now he says, love as I have loved you. Now that, that's not entirely possible in your human strength. And I'm sure most of you, if you've been a believer very long, you know that. You've prayed before, Lord, help me to love. You might have done it this morning. <laughs> On the way here. The only way to do that is to go back and look at what Jesus said there. Love one another as, this is the part you need to know, I have loved you. See, I love you with an infinite love. And that is really the key. That's really the basis. That's really the foundation for loving others like Jesus. You have to know that. You have to believe that you are unconditionally loved by Jesus Christ. And that that love was exemplified to you and demonstrated to you while you were still a sinner. Romans 5.8. Christ died for you on the cross. You have to know that. You have to believe that. There's where the power to love others comes from. And so Peter passed it on in his letter. He learned it from Jesus. He passed it on. He said, love one another sincerely and deeply in chapter 1. In chapter 3, again, love one another. In chapter 4, above all, love one another. Then here in chapter 5, love one another with a kiss of love. Greet one another. Express your love. And why does Peter and Jesus have to command this then? Why? This should come naturally to us, should it not? Well, I'll tell you why. Because St. Augustine said, we are, a little Latin for you, incurvatus in se. You know what that means? Curved in on ourselves. Centuries prior, this was a theological term to describe the main effect that sin has on us to live our lives inward, curved in on ourselves instead of outward to God and to others. The natural inclination for every person in this room is to be curved in on yourself. 
our immediate felt needs, our desires, our wants, our momentary gratifications. It is only through the gospel that we are empowered to go from this to stand upright and to worship God and to reach out and to love and serve others only through the gospel. And every week, and maybe perhaps every day, we need to be reminded not to live for ourselves, but for God by serving others. And that love is more than a concept. It's ultimately an action. You know, so often we are deceived into thinking that love is just a nice concept. It is way more than that, much more than that. It is an action exemplified by Jesus. It'd be one thing if God just kind of said from heaven, hey, you guys, I love you. It's another thing when he sent his son to die on the cross. It's an action. It's demonstrated. God demonstrated his love for us in the why we were sinners. Christ died for us. So any love in your life, any claim for love in your life is only one that can be seen in something that's demonstrated in your life. So you have to regularly ask ourselves, me, you, all of us, we have to ask ourselves, have I loved? Who did I call this week? Who did I encourage? Who did I pray for? If necessary, who did I forgive? Who did I serve? Who did I have compassion on? See, those things are all expressions of the kind of love that Peter exhorts us to live out. We've always been called to it. And in the days ahead, this kind of love is going to be more and more and more important among us. Peter says, greet one another with love. So what does that mean to us this morning? Well, I'll tell you one thing. It doesn't mean that you run to your car the moment the service is over. <laughs> I know that. And I know that personally. Confessional this morning. Are you ready? <laughs> Father, I have sinned. <laughs> you know, I used to, back in the day, early on in my Christian life, while I was going to Bible school, I always wanted to be the first out of the service because I wanted to be the first to the parking lot because I wanted to be the first out of the parking lot. <laughs> so I could get on with my day, the half day that I had left before I had to go back to work on Monday. I had things planned. After all, I, I got what I came for. I got to worship God. I got to hear the word spoken heard the Bible taught. Now, on to whatever else I had, I had planned for that day. You know, and that never changed until I met Violet <laughs> and married Violet. But the biggest change came when we arrived at our first place of ministry, and the first church we served at was located in Missouri. And one of my duties as an assistant pastor there was to, was to close down the facilities, everything, lights, air conditioning, all the whole nine yards, right? So I'm not kidding you. I'm not kidding you. I'm not, this is accurate. So after the service is over, I'd, I'd wait a couple minutes and then I'd start turning the lights off. Everybody's standing around, you know, talking. Sometimes someone would look at me, I'd go, oops, and turn it back on. But I didn't mean oops. I meant, look, at, there's things to do today. Let's move on, right? 
Let's move on here. So, real subtle. Anyway, um, a couple of weeks later, the senior pastor called me into his office and um, addressed that. By the end of that first year, we had become the people who are always the last to leave. Not just because I wanted to keep my job, but because we began to learn the value of fellowship, of just being with other believers, of just hanging out, of just talking with other believers. Now, if you think about it, the prime time to fellowship with other believers, I mean, your whole week, right? Your whole week, you're around mostly unbelievers if you're working, right? But your prime time. Now, I know maybe once in a while you get together with another, some other believers. Maybe you go out to dinner, you have somebody over. But most of the time, the prime time for meeting, the prime time for gathering, the prime time for talking, fellowshipping, interacting, showing, demonstrating love is in connection with the gathering, the main gathering. Or you're gathering as a small group. If you're in small groups, you have more exposure to this. And so, we have to look not only at small groups, but Sunday morning is that time where we're not just worshiping. We haven't just gathered to worship God. We haven't just gathered together to, to hear the Word, as we're right doing right now. We gather together to be with one another. And I'm telling you, that also is going to become more valuable to you as time goes on. Acts 2 says just this. It says the early church not only gathered together to worship, to hear the apostles' teaching, but also to fellowship. Fellowship. Now, I know there's a lot of people. I'm, that was me, too. I realize this. I've sat in that chair. I barely know anybody here. There's only one way to breach that barrier. You just have to believe what God says about loving one another and be vulnerable, and just hang out, and introduce yourself to someone. There's no other way. And those of you who are at home here, you need to look beyond the people that you normally meet up with after service. You need to connect with people you don't know by greeting, by welcoming, by, by showing love to one another. Peter says that, love one another. He has to command it. We have to remember it. We have to remind ourselves. One another isn't talking about loving your unbelieving coworker. You're to do that. It's talking about loving another believer. And the time, and the, you know, it's not just, well, yeah, my believing spouse, I love you, I love you. There, we're done. Right? No, you know what it means. Love one another. It's important. It's not secondary. It's not secondary to the teaching. It's not secondary to the worship. And that's why every few times a year we take the end of a service like this, and we're going to do it this morning, to introduce to you some folks who have just decided to make Grace Family Church their church home. Right? We're going to do that right now.